Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. It's not 2020 anymore. It is a new year, and things are actually still really bad. Uh, there's still a pandemic. There's economic devastation. Um, earlier this month, a bunch of right-wing maniacs stormed the U.S. Capitol. Uh, stuff's not great. There are flickers of hope here and there. There are multiple vaccines for COVID-19, which is good. Uh, the president of the United States is no longer a maniacal racist game show host, which is also good. Um, but things could be better. Uh, in this episode, we talk about one of the bad things that has been sort of floating around the political environment for the past, you know, four years or so, and that's treason. Uh, I talked to Carlton F.W. Larson. He is a professor of constitutional law at UC Davis. And treason has been, I think, on everyone's minds for a whole bunch of reasons for a while. But that storming of the Capitol earlier this January, that really brought it to the fore. And we do get to that in our conversation. Um, I found this to be a very interesting conversation. I also found it to be frustrating. Treason is the only crime in the U.S. Constitution. The framers of the Constitution, they did not define things like murder or theft or copyright infringement or jaywalking, but they did talk about treason in that document. And the United States has had kind of a checkered history with treason law, both in terms of not really enforcing it, like after the Civil War with basically everybody in the Confederate military and also the Confederate government. And also we talk about the one person in American history to be executed for treason. And in that one instance where the U.S. government killed somebody for being treasonous, uh, it was a miscarriage of justice. Uh, it was not fair. It was outrageous. And people thought so at the time. So this was informative, and again, we get to current events at the end of the conversation. Please enjoy my talk with Carlton F.W. Larson, professor of constitutional law at UC Davis and author of a recent book called On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Carlton Larson, hello. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question I have for you, could you uh, give listeners a bit of background on yourself and uh, about the book and why you decided to write it? Yeah, sure. I am the uh, a Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the UC Davis School of Law in Davis, California, where I teach constitutional law and legal history. And I've been interested in the subject of treason uh, for a long time, since the mid-1990s, uh, when I wrote my senior thesis in college on, on the how treason applied during the American Revolution. And I continued to work on that project along with some others, uh, ultimately culminating uh, in a book published in 2019, called The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. Uh, and as a result of that work, I became known as somebody who um, had dug a bit into the, the history of treason law, and there aren't a whole lot of people uh, who have done that. So when people started asking questions about Donald Trump, I tended to get a lot of calls uh, from the media asking whether or not particular things he had done uh, constituted treason. Um, and this was really quite extraordinary to have that question asked 
by the President of the United States, and then Trump in turn accused um, dozens of other people uh, of committing treason, and so people had questions as to whether that was accurate or not. Uh, so since everybody was talking about treason, but often doing so in a way that wasn't necessarily uh, legally accurate or necessarily historically informed, I thought it might be useful uh, for there to be uh, a uh, relatively short uh, and accessible book uh, for non-lawyers uh, that would explain uh, what precisely uh, treason is and is not in American law, uh, and then to illustrate that uh, with a series of stories of famous uh, treason trials throughout American history. Uh, and so that's the book on treason that was released uh, in September of 2020. Yeah, if I recall correctly, there was a Trump tweet that was just one word, and I believe it was just TREASON in all caps, uh, yeah. <laughs> with a question mark. And uh, I don't recall who he was talking about in that tweet, but um, the, the the conclusion that you come into your book is probably no. Whatever yeah, I think, I, I think I remember that tweet. I think my response to my tweet was, all, was simply no. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, let's get to uh, let's get to what treason was uh, for the for the founders who put it in the Constitution of the U.S. Uh, they were not working in a vacuum. They were working from uh, English law that preceded them. Uh, what was treason defined as in the English law that the founders would have been familiar with and working from? So, in 1351, the English Parliament uh, passed uh, a statute called the Statute of Treasons. Uh, and this sought to limit the crime of treason to uh, a handful of offenses. The, the first uh, was compassing the death of the king, uh, and then there were ones that are more familiar to us, like adhering to the king's enemies, giving the maiden comfort, or levying war against the king. Uh, included a variety of other offenses, such as counterfeiting uh, or sleeping with the king's wife. Uh, but the, the idea of the statute was that treason would be relatively limited. And this was something that the founders understood uh, and operated against. And so during the revolution, a lot of the pre-revolutionary debate was about uh, whether that statute of treasons applied to various actions taken by colonial Americans to resist British authority. And so when they sought to uh, define treason in our own constitution, which is what they did in Article 3, uh, they used that language from the English statute. And so uh, our constitution in Article 3 says treason shall consist only of levying war against the United States, uh, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Uh, and so those phrases came directly out of uh, this body of English law. And by that point, there'd been about 400 years worth of judicial interpretations of those terms. So they were understood as sort of technical legal terms of art that would be understood uh, in reference to English law. Maybe I'm a little bit off here, but when you uh, in your book, when you define that older English uh, version of treason, it seems to very much be about crimes against the person of the king, like, you know, killing him or sleeping with his wife, or I guess even minting coins that might have his face on it. And it seemed interesting to me that that very, that sort of almost personal betrayal was ported over into the American constitution, where it's more of a betrayal against like the nation or the state or the, or like government or authority. So it seemed like a little bit, um, a little bit of an ill-fitting cut and paste job. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Well, I think it's certainly right that, you know, the original medieval statute very much had this sense of personal betrayal and that it was about betraying a person's allegiance to a monarch. Uh, and in the American version, we don't have that. 
Uh, and so, for example, you know, killing the president uh, is not in itself treason. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't even a federal crime until after uh, the Kennedy assassination. So we've somewhat taken that personal aspect out of it. Uh, but that in itself wasn't entirely unheard of in English tradition either, because by the 17th and 18th century, you, you are getting more of a sense that despite the language of that statute, um, treason could be sort of seen as a crime, crime against the state, and not necessarily against the monarch. And, and probably the most visible demonstration of that would have been uh, the execution of Charles I, uh, for the crime of treason, and if he, of course, is the monarch, um, but he's being conceived of as a person who has betrayed um, his kingdom, even though he is uh, the king. Uh, and so once you have an execution like that, it becomes easier to think about uh, treason as, an, as a betrayal of, of the state and betrayal of the, the ties you have to all of your fellow citizens, uh, rather than just about a relationship you might have with a monarch. Okay, that's fascinating. Uh, that's an interesting way to put it. I don't believe you mentioned um, Charles I in your in your book at all, but like that. No, I don't think I did. Yeah. Uh, so for folks who are unfamiliar with their um, American history, uh, American history or civics class, or who are not from the United States, who are listening, uh, how does the American Constitution define treason? Uh, so Article Three says it's uh, limited to. Um, levying war against the United States or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. And so uh, that is the only thing that can be treason. Congress can't expand it by statute. So in England, um, even though we had this 1351 statute of treasons, Parliament was always free to expand it. Uh, and Parliament did, um, most notably in the, in the Tudor and Stuart periods, where they passed fairly expansive treason legislation that was later seen as a pretty big mistake. So under the American Constitution, that can't happen. Um, we are limited simply to these these two offenses. Uh, and that means that a lot of things that are pretty bad uh, and that we would sort of easily think of as betrayals of the United States or think of as treason in, in a colloquial sense uh, will not necessarily rise to treason uh, as a criminal law matter under Article 3. Okay. It's interesting because it's one of the only crimes mentioned in the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't go out of its way to define, say, murder or arson or thievery or anything else, but there is like a particular uh, mention for treason. So it was held in, it was held as being particularly bad uh, by the folks who wrote that, wrote that document. Yeah, so it's the only crime specifically defined in the Constitution. James Wilson, who played a, a large role in drafting it, had had warned, you know, the, the crimes against the state, uh, he says, more wrong, history has shown us that more wrong can be done on this subject than on almost any other whatsoever. Um, that this is an area where you really got to be careful um, when the government starts waving, you know, claims of treason around. Uh, that this can get very, very dangerous very quickly. Uh, and Article 3 is meant uh, to limit that. There have been notable instances of, well, you define the Constitution defines treason very narrowly, and you talk about treason as being defined very narrowly in your book. Uh, but there have been several instances of betrayal uh, of the United States throughout American history, and you go through them uh, in your book. Uh, of course, we have Benedict Arnold, but one that I wanted to ask you about in particular was uh, by a person a lot of people probably have heard of because they've seen the musical Hamilton, but they might not be familiar with what happened to Aaron Burr after he shot Alexander Hamilton. Uh, why was he accused of treason? 
Yeah, I, mean, I really do think that there's, there needs the sequel to the Hamilton musical really needs to be Burr, uh, the musical, and to follow up on what happens to Burr after the famous duel. Um, so Burr, not surprisingly, is not Jefferson's running mate uh, in 1805. Um, he is uh, no longer uh, vice president, and he's looking around for something to do. And he goes off into the American West, where he has all kinds of meetings uh, with various people, and then eventually a group of men are assembled uh, on a tiny, skinny island in the Ohio River called Blennerhassett Island. Uh, and it's unclear what exactly they were up to. Um, the Jefferson administration thought that what they were planning to do was to sail down the Ohio River and then uh, ultimately reach New Orleans, where they would engage in an armed overthrow of the government in New Orleans and establish Aaron Burr uh, as the emperor of a new country uh, in, the, in the West. And so Burr was charged with treason, and he was prosecuted uh, in Richmond, Virginia in 1807. The trial uh, was presided over by John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the United States. And this is really one of the absolutely most extraordinary criminal trials in American history. Here we have a man who just two and a half years earlier had been the vice president of the United States is now being tried for treason by the Jefferson administration, the administration under which he had been uh, the vice president. Uh, and due to legal rulings by John Marshall, uh, Burr is ultimately uh, acquitted uh, and then sort of spends the rest of his life uh, quietly working as a lawyer in New York. And historians still debate what exactly uh, Burr was up to. Uh, my own sense is that it appears that he was up to no good, um, although what exactly it was is, is somewhat hard to determine. Yeah, John Marshall also, for context, was the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States at the time. Uh, yeah, one one of the big ones. There's an impressive statue of him at the Supreme Court. Um, so, what what do you think he was up to, based on everything that you have uh, read and dug into about this incident? Did did you come to any particular conclusion while you were uh, researching it? Not really. I mean, what what when I, when I started looking into it, I thought that that perhaps the charges had had been overstated. That there was a bit of hysteria over this. Um, I'm less sure of that now. Um, and I think partly reading through it was you see all these times where Burr could have clearly sort of cleared his name by just simply offering an innocent explanation uh, for what he did or for what he said. And, and he never did that. Um, and I think that silence uh, is fairly telling um, that he, what was going on was ultimately really not in the interest of the United States. Uh, but again, that very same silence um, makes it hard to know for sure because he never explicitly said he did anything good but he also didn't explicitly say he did anything bad so a lot of it really just has to rely on conjecture you also talk about um slave uprising uh uh yeah we can call it a slave uprising and members of that who were uh, tried for treason in the united states uh in independence hall in philadelphia what happened there yeah so this is the the trial in 1851 uh, of a man named uh, Kasner Hanway. Um, and this resulted out of an incident uh, that has become known as the Christiana Riot, uh, which happened in, in the small town of Christiana um, in southern Pennsylvania. Uh, and it involved an attempt uh, by a man named Edward Gorsuch, uh, who was a slaveholder from Maryland, uh, to try to recover um, three men who had escaped from enslavement on his farm. 
Uh, and he was using uh, the tools given to him by the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, uh, which had strengthened the provision in the Constitution stating uh, that persons who escaped from enslavement into a free state did not become free, uh, but were obligated to be returned uh, to enslavement. Uh, and so uh, his attempt to enforce this um, ended uh, in uh, his death um, when he was shot um, by uh, leaders of the of the free African American community uh, in Christiana, uh, and uh, this resulted in indictments for treason of uh, 33 African American uh, men, uh, the only African Americans, as far as I can determine, who have been charged uh, with treason against the United States. And then a man named um, Kasner Hanway, um, a white man who lived nearby, um, who was viewed, I think incorrectly, uh, as the leader uh, of the entire uh, event. Uh, and so Hanway went on trial first, and his trial took place on the second floor of Independence Hall. Uh, this was uh, where the U.S. Federal Court for Philadelphia was sitting. Independence Hall was also uh, where the Fugitive Slave Act was enforced, uh, where people were given uh, certificates uh, entitling them to um, get the returned slaves. Uh, and uh, under direction from Justice Robert Greer uh, of the United States Supreme Court, uh, Hanway was convicted, uh, and Greer's opinion suggested um, that levying war against the United States, which is what they were charged with, um, wasn't really just about trying to overturn one law, in this case the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, it really required an intent to overthrow the entire government. Uh, and Greer said that simply wasn't present on the facts of this case, and that what happened here was at most a riot uh, or a murder, um, but it was not legally treason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also found it fascinating in your book, you say that uh, Hanway was likely the one who was put on trial for treason uh, simply because he was white, and they assumed that uh, it was probably a white man who was like the mastermind of this. Uh, as opposed to any of the African-American participants. And also, apparently, he was on a horse, and folks assumed that he was uh, leading it for that reason? Yeah, so so he had he lived nearby. He heard the sound of the horn, which was the signal um, for the Self-Protection Society to gather. Uh, and he then went over there on his horse, essentially to see what was going on, and he actually helped uh, some of the Gorsuch party uh, try to uh, avoid being hurt. Uh, and it's unclear that he had any involvement in anti-slavery activities uh, at all. Uh, and he's, he may have just been sort of a, a random person who kind of wandered into this ongoing event uh, and then finds himself tried you know, for the crime of treason against the United States in Independence Hall. Um, and you know, why was he picked? Well, I think you know, exactly as you point out, it was this racist assumption uh, that only a white man could be behind uh, these events. Yeah. Um, also, like reading your book, I got the impression that uh, treason in the United States, the enforcement of it has kind of a, um, I don't want to, I don't know what to call it, maybe a speckled history. Is that, a, is that an idiot? Yes, uh, yes, I think that's, that's exactly right. There are some of, the, some of the prosecutions when look back and think, yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. That was consistent with the law and the professional ethics of the lawyers involved. And there's other cases where, where it really, um, you, you don't get a lot of pride uh, yeah, yeah, in, in, in the way this was done. There's that, and then there's the one instance where somebody is executed for treason in the United States, and that was also a very strange case. What happened there? Yeah, and this this is really one of the most appalling um, abuses uh, of the judicial 
power in the United States history. And it's an extraordinary story. It was one that I was unaware of until um, about a month or so before my manuscript was due. So I, I feel very lucky that I came across it when I did. And this involves the Mexican-American War, uh, which was fought between the United States and Mexico <clears throat> between 1846 and 1848. And American troops entered into uh, the Mexican uh, state of New Mexico and announced that New Mexico was now part of the United States, that all the people living there were now United States citizens, that anybody who resisted uh, was guilty of treason against the United States. Now, this is simply not true. Um, New Mexico didn't become part of the United States until the 1848 treaty that ended the war. Um, you know, you don't just expand the borders of the country because you sent an army over the border. Um, you know, if this were true, then people in Baghdad in 2003 were somehow citizens of the United States, and if they resisted us, they were guilty of treason. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, but that's what the officials on the ground said, uh, and they tried a number of people who had uh, fought against them, including a man named Hippolito Salazar, for the crime of treason against the United States. Uh, and Salazar was then executed in 1847 in the plaza uh, in Taos, New Mexico, and he remains the only person um, executed uh, for treason against the federal government uh, since the Constitution was adopted. Now, as news of this reached back to Washington, uh, members of Congress were absolutely appalled uh, they realized that there was no legal justification for this whatsoever. Uh, and the Polk administration had to concede that, yes, they had made a mistake. Um, he wasn't technically guilty of treason. They said he was a bad guy. He was a murderer. He deserved to be hanged for other crimes. Um, but they essentially had to concede that, no, the treason conviction was illegitimate. Uh, and so this, this is, uh, if you think about it, here we had the only execution of a person for treason against the United States since 1787 is a Mexican man tried on Mexican soil, uh, and he had never set foot in the United States. Uh, and he's the one um, who was hanged. Yeah, that's probably the part of your book that I found the most uh, surprising. Um, because, yeah, like, it would never... It it seems so strange. You, you have the renaphore of, like, say, uh, an American general invading... Kamchatka or somewhere, declaring it to be American soil, and then executing somebody for, you know, continuing to wage war against uh, the United States. It's not materially different from from that. And everyone would think that's kind of a strange and absurd thing to do. Yeah, and, that, and that, the Kamchatka quote is actually from a member of Congress who, who, okay, made, yeah. who made exactly that argument that, you know, this, this simply doesn't make any sense. Right. But there is, I, I know people are thinking about it because as soon as you write a book about treason or talk about it, it's probably the, the big thing that uh, comes to people's minds. There is one big instance of, you know, levying war upon the United States and denouncing your loyalty to the United States and trying to destroy the U.S. government and all that. That is the Civil War. And that is an incident where we have, like, a pretty demonstrable and good case against Jefferson Davis for treason. And yet, he doesn't end up getting hanged like Salazar did, or even punished particularly harshly. What happened to Jefferson Davis um, after the peace at Appomattox? Yeah, and so, so it's an interesting comparison, right? You know, Salazar dies, and Jefferson Davis goes on um, to live, despite leading, uh, as you know, the single greatest act of mass treason 
against the United States in our history, one that resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, so uh, after Appomattox, Jefferson Davis had, had fled. Uh, he was ultimately captured by uh, Union troops in uh, Irwinville, Georgia, uh, and he's then charged with treason against the United States, and his case drags on for a couple of years. Andrew Johnson pardons uh, a number of other Confederate uh, officials, but not Davis, because the view was um, he really is the, the top one, and if, if you can't prosecute him, you, you probably can't prosecute anybody. Uh, and it looks like his case is about to go to trial, um, and then the Chief Justice of the United States, Salmon Chase, tips off his defense lawyers about a legal argument that he, Chase, would, would be open to. Uh, and the argument was, well, the 14th Amendment has just been passed, and the 14th Amendment contains this provision, Section 3, which we're all talking about now uh, in the wake of January 6th, that says if you engage in insurrection against the United States, um, you are barred from public office if you'd previously taken an oath uh, to uphold the Constitution. And so Chase said, well, that's the, that means that that's the exclusive punishment for people who engage in the Civil War. They can't also be tried for treason. Um, now, that's a really quite flimsy argument, and it was mocked by all kinds of people at the time. Um, but uh, they, the, Davis's lawyers raised this argument, and Chase accepted it. Uh, this was a time when justices presided over trials, and there was actually two judges, um, Chief Justice Chase and then the um, the federal district judge who disagreed with this, and the case was then set for uh, resolution in the Supreme Court. But at that point, Andrew Johnson basically just decided to throw in the towel uh, and granted Davis a pardon. Uh, and so he ultimately escaped uh, criminal consequences for his actions. And went on to write some, uh, I think, really influential meta really influential memoirs about how uh, the Civil War was not actually about slavery. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. He goes on and he writes these things, and then they become a, a big part of, of the myth of, um, of 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 Reconstruction, and you know, picked up by the Dunning School and, and carried forward. Um, and so, and and he's able to, you know, a, a Jefferson Davis sitting in jail for treason, um, writing those books, or frankly, even an executed Jefferson Davis is very different than a free Jefferson Davis uh, sitting in a Mississippi mansion that someone gave him. Uh, and writing these books. I want to ask you about something now that we talked about various uh, historical instances of treason or not quite treason or that type of thing. I, I want to ask your opinion on some, like, basically current events. Uh, we're recording this on January 19th, and just about two weeks ago, uh, we had a very large group of people storming the U.S. Capitol. And um, I, I don't know, like, would that be considered levying war against the United States? Would that have the shape and form of like, you know, putting together an army and attacking the government? Is that more like terrorism? Is that just gang violence or mob violence? Um, how do you think the founders would have viewed an activity like that? How do you view that? What, what to make of that? So I think it could be seen as levying war against the United States. And I have a piece in the Washington Post um, that came out the day after the um, the, the attack. Um, no, that's which, what I'm asking you about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which argues that you actually <laughs> yeah. the, the, the founders would have viewed this as, uh, as treason. Uh, and so if you look at the late 18th century, early 19th century cases dealing with levying war against the United States, they all basically say that an armed attack, uh, say, on the seat of government in an attempt to 
uh, disrupt the laws or to disrupt um, the, the actions of Congress uh, is an act of levying war. And so this was used to prosecute, uh, for example, the Lewiski rebels in Pennsylvania, uh, the Freezes rebels in Pennsylvania who were resisting uh, particular uh, federal taxes. Uh, and so I think simply just looking at those cases, I think it's crystal clear um, that the founding generation would have said that the January 6th events um, were treason by levying war against the United States. Where it gets a little more complicated is um, the Hanway case we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, where Justice Greer suggested that uh, in order to constitute levying war, it has to be not just an attempt to resist one particular law, but an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States entirely. Uh, and so if that's the issue, then it becomes a little bit harder, because it's easy to say they're resisting one particular law, they're resisting the Electoral Count Act. Um, and the question is, did they seek to overthrow the government entirely? And I think it's, it's, it's a hard question, because it's not just that you're you know, messing around with Congress on one particular day. It, it's an incredibly significant day. It's about the peaceful transfer of power to the next administration. So I think one could make an argument uh, that they really were attempting to overthrow the government of the United States uh, total um, by disrupting this transfer of power. Um, on the other hand, um, some of the, the rioters clearly didn't have that intent. They were maybe just causing trouble. And so I think you'd have to look at particular individuals and see what they were up to. Uh, there's also the two witness requirement, which is a, potentially a problem. Um, it's, it's not clear that video evidence would count, uh, even though we have this thing filmed uh, like nothing else has ever been filmed. For an event like this, and my guess is that prosecutors um, simply won't bring this charge because they have them on so many other counts uh, that they don't really need to add in the additional legal complexities of a treason charge. So I wouldn't expect prosecutors to pursue this, um, although it would certainly be um, within the realm of legal competence to consider this uh, as a possible charge. Yeah, that's something that you mentioned. Very often, when people have committed like what could be considered um, traitorous acts in American history, uh, you don't necessarily need to bring a treason charge. So, you know, we have, say, Lee Harvey Oswald kills JFK. And, well, he got Jack Ruby killed him before he could go to trial, but he committed murder. You don't need to add treason on top of that. And that's usually the case with a lot of these acts. Like the the Rosenbergs, they committed espionage and that is also breaking the law. You don't need to also um, try, put them on trial for treason. Yeah, there's, it's very hard to think of you know, you know, serious acts of treason one can commit. We also haven't committed a whole bunch of other crimes. Um, and you might think about you know, say the, the attack on the Oklahoma City Federal Building uh, in 1995. I think there's a decent argument that that was an act of levying war against the United States. But you know, they had over 100 murder charges. You, you just don't need to bring in the trees in charge doesn't really add anything. So this might be a odd question, but if, uh, if there's always something else you can charge somebody with, uh, be it blowing up a building or murder or still selling state secrets or what have you, why have, um, why have treason defined as a crime at all? What function does it serve? Yeah, that's a, a, you know, a very good question. Uh, and cause you can all often punish lesser forms, uh, of disloyalty. Uh, well, I do think there is sort of a, there's this distinctive odium uh, to the crime of treason. Uh, and people really, really want, they be very passionate about this. They really want things to be viewed as, as treason. 
Um, people really wanted Donald Trump's actions with respect to Russia to be viewed as treason, um, even though legally that um, wasn't supportable. Um, but it, it, they, they felt that strongly, and I think Trump has felt that strongly. And you even heard, hear this term traitor uh, tossed around on the other side uh, by people saying that uh, you know, Mike Pence was, was a traitor for not supporting Trump in the, in the Electoral Count Act. So it has this real stigma to it. Uh, and so there are circumstances where it's just as a demonstration of the extraordinary seriousness with which we take it, um, it, it is uh, an appropriate crime to charge. And then there also there will be a handful of cases. I'm thinking really sort of the living, you know, living war cases where there's almost always another crime. That's not always necessarily true with um, aiding the enemy cases. And so the most recent case is 2006, Adam Gadon, um, who's serving as a, uh, a spokesperson for al-Qaeda. Um, he's charged with treason for uh, aiding the enemies of the United States. And I think that was an appropriate charge for him. Uh, he potentially could have been charged with providing material support uh, to a terrorist organization um, uh, by serving as a, uh, as a propagandist. Um, but treason is a good fit there, uh, too. So I think there, there will be a handful of cases um, where the treason charge is appropriate. And prosecutors may also, you know, often tend to overcharge uh, as part of plea bargaining. Uh, and they agree to drop some of the more serious charges in exchange for guilty pleas on some of the lesser charges. Uh, Gidanda, we should add, he will never go to trial because he was killed in a drone strike. Yeah, so he was, um, it's a very interesting case. So he was a... a, a young man from Southern California who ended up um, as, a, as an Al-Qaeda member uh, in uh, Afghanistan and in, in Pakistan. He was killed uh, by a drone strike. So his case went to trial, but he's the only person formally indicted for treason um, in the United States in, in the last 70 years or so. That The most recent before him were some early 1950s cases arising out of World War II. Does his death by drone strike constitute, uh, do you think, extrajud- extrajudicial execution? It's a, it's a very hard question. Uh, and um, on the one hand, you had uh, an order by uh, President Obama to target this person for uh, a drone strike. Uh, and if you think about that, this is a United States citizen, and here's the President of the United States essentially issuing an order um, to kill that person. Uh, now, in almost any other circumstance, that would be blatantly unconstitutional. Uh, and you know, I think constitutional scholars debate this a lot. There, there's been no clear uh, resolution of it one way or another by the courts. Um, but I do think that there are certain circumstances in which military force being used against a United States citizen is legal and permissible, uh, and which you can essentially kill them without a trial. Uh, and that is if they are currently using military force against the United States itself. So if you think about the United States Civil War, um, Union soldiers killed thousands, hundreds of thousands of Confederate soldiers. Um, was that unconstitutional? No, because they were suppressing a rebellion. Uh, and in the course of suppressing a rebellion, uh, that's what happens. Uh, so similarly, if someone is fighting with the enemy on the other side, um, we can shoot at them too. So if an American citizen was wearing a Nazi uniform uh, at a battle in, in Germany in, in World War II, yes, we could take a shot at that person. And so I think uh, a person uh, in Al-Qaeda uh, could be viewed um, in the same manner. Uh, but obviously, it's a power that one has to be very careful with, uh, and it would be limited to uh, 
a handful of extraordinary circumstances. Uh, one last thing, and then I'll let you go. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you feel is uh, important to mention? Uh, I guess the one thing I, we, we, I might want to say a little bit more about is uh, the issue of um, aiding the enemies, because that has come up a lot with respect to uh, Donald Trump uh, and Russia. Uh, and the law here is uh, pretty clear that um, enemies are only foreign nations or groups with whom we're in a state of open war. Uh, and so that means that currently uh, that would, I think, include Al-Qaeda. It would include uh, the Taliban. It would include ISIS. Uh, but it simply doesn't include nations who are hostile to us or um, messing with us, say, like Russia or, or China, uh, but if, with, where we're not in a state uh, of open war. Uh, and so that means that aid to Russia, aid to China by a U.S. citizen, uh, simply isn't treason, no matter how egregious uh, the misbehavior. Um, and that's, that can be kind of a, a tough nut for, for a lot of folks to swallow, because it just seems so obviously like treason. I mean, if you hand over military secrets to Russia, surely that must be treason. Um, but technically, uh, it's not. But again, fortunately, we have things like the espionage laws. Um, that's how we used to get um, the Rosenbergs. That's what we used to get Alder Games. Uh, and those laws are, are more than sufficient to, to send these people uh, to prison uh, for a very long time. Yeah, I think it's like fascinating and also kind of frustrating about the distinction between the um, sort of colloquial use of a term and the kind of like popular and maybe kind of morally imagined definition of tre treason versus the definition, the technical and legal definition of treason that you actually have to use if you're in court prosecuting somebody for this. Yeah, yeah and it's so, so, I mean, I wish we had, that it was, a, you know, that we had two different words, one that we could use for the specific criminal charge in court and one for more this general sense of uh, betrayal, because I certainly understand why people often uh, resort to this term in, in a sort of a colloquial sense. And there is, you know, in some ways, you know, being a law professor nitpicking about, well, technically it's not, um, can maybe seem a little much, uh, but I think it is important to, uh, you know, that we do distinguish this carefully. And so that we, when we toss the term around, that we're being careful in terms of what we're saying, because if you really do mean it as a criminal offense, it's the highest offense known to the law. Uh, it's a capital offense. Uh, and one shouldn't toss that around lightly. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us today. Really appreciate it. Well, sure. Thank you. Really enjoyed being here. All right, folks. Hope you all enjoyed that. Once again, the book is On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law by Carlton F.W. Larson. Uh, it's short. It's succinct. I learned a lot reading it. Um, as always, do go to Apple Podcasts. Give us various stars and reviews. All of that. That's very helpful. Thank you all for listening. It's a new year. Glad to be talking to you again. And we'll be out with a new episode very soon. Bye. You're all